We are talking once again with Job Parrish, local writer and activist, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good afternoon. And no Maria this week. She will most likely not be back with us until the end of April. So, Oh, no. She's on her sabbatical. Yes. Or pilgrimage. Yes, she does this every year. All right, so starting out with a uh, op-ed in the Seattle Times by Sharon Lee and Reverend Robert Jeffries. Yeah, the King County Regional Homelessness Authority uh, put out their draft five-year plan this past uh, week. and uh, Actually, it, they put it out in January. Oh, okay. The draft five-year plan to significantly reduce homelessness. Um Stop us if you've heard this before, because, of course, you know, 20 years ago, there was a near plan to end homelessness, a plan which we continuously mocked for about a decade. Um, and this, honestly, isn't much better. Uh, you mentioned the op-ed by Sharon Lee and Reverend Robert Jeffries. Um, that raised uh, some of the problems with it, but not all of the problems with it. Um, the most significant thing that uh, both the plan is missing and the op-ed was missing was any kind of input from homeless people themselves. And uh, Lee and Jeffries alluded to this when they talk about the plan doesn't mention tiny house villages, which is uh, by far the most popular option for housing for uh, people living on the street. And we now have data from the pandemic uh, that shows that uh, people who are put in tiny houses or motel rooms or anything where they can actually privately lock up their possessions and uh, uh, be housed along with their partners and or pets and or possessions without fear of them getting ripped off, um, that makes them a lot more stable and a lot more able to find permanent housing. Um, this should not be rocket science, but it apparently is to the uh, uh, folks in the uh, bureauc- homelessness bureaucracy who haven't figured that out in 30 years now. Um, the Homelessness Authority's five-year plan uh, costs $12 billion. It uh, does spend a fair amount of time talking about the need for permanent affordable housing and building that housing, which is extremely expensive. Uh, it also talks about shelter beds, which is um, uh, certainly something that is there's a shortage of in King County, uh, particularly because, uh, you know, if you have over 10,000 people living either on the street or in vehicles or couch surfing or, you know, any of the various forms of homelessness, um, you know, there there is nowhere near enough shelter beds to meet that demand. Um, so it talks a lot about uh, adding shelter beds and adding permanent affordable housing, but not at all about tiny house villages, which, um, you know, the op-ed from Lee and Jeffries doesn't mention that they're both involved in administering tiny house villages. And that kind of disclosure would have been, I think, useful context, but oh well. Um yeah, it, it's it's more of the same. It did did not the the five year plan did not mention that both Seattle and a lot of the suburbs are engaged in uh, homelessness sweeps, which are counterproductive and uh, cause people to lose their possessions. And 
spend a lot of additional time and stress trying to regain those possessions, including things like ID, uh, you know, job, health insurance cards, all all that kind of stuff that people take for granted that they can hang on to, but you can't hang on to it when um, the place you're staying may be randomly seized by uh, by the city. Um, so you know, it, it seems like uh, a a plan to significantly reduce homelessness should address the strategies that cities are in the county are actually using right now to uh, try and reduce homelessness, which doesn't reduce homelessness at all. It just pushes it around and causes it to be less visible to people who are annoyed by it. That plan really seems detached from reality. And I think that was the the sort of unspoken takeaway of the Sharon Lee and, and Robert Jeffries op-ed is that, you know, this is a plan that is drafted by bureaucrats uh, without input from either homelessness or homeless service providers. And um, uh, or at least that doesn't, doesn't reflect any kind of input like that. It's extremely expensive and, uh, you know, politically not feasible uh, because of the price tag. And, it rolls out a lot of strategies that have already been tried uh, to no success. So, yeah, it's uh, it was discouraging. So you mentioned uh, Sharon Lee, who uh, is one of the co-authors, obviously is uh, maybe not obviously has gotten a significant amount of criticism from people on the left and the progressives and that it would have been nice if they had uh, mentioned their connection. What is, um, Reverend Robert Jeffries' connection to uh, tiny house villages. There is a uh, an encampment at uh, I believe New Hope Baptist Church where he's the pastor, and okay. he's also he's also been involved in a lot of nonprofit service organizations over the years. Um, Jeffries has been pastor at New Hope for I think thirty seven years, uh, for a long time, and he's deeply deeply involved in the community. Uh, one of the things that um, is not often mentioned about uh, homelessness policies is that they disproportionately impact people of color. And so, um, you know, any kind of um, any kind of plan to address homelessness uh, also has to have some sort of cultural competency. And that also was not mentioned in the five year plan. So. Have you heard criticisms of Reverend Robert Jeffries' uh, management of the different entities he's been involved with? No, I haven't. And as you mentioned, Sharon Lee has been extremely controversial uh, over her career. Um, and I, I won't get into some of the reasons why, because some, some of those might be a little confidential to people I've heard them from. But... Um, uh, certainly she's been, she was deeply involved in trying to take over and successfully taking over some of the encampments that were managed by Nicholsville. And, uh, there have been a lot of complaints in the, uh, in the Lehigh operated housing, uh, in terms of the way that she manages those. So, uh, yeah, she's controversial for sure. Uh, she's the sort of personality that gets things done and doesn't care who she has to stomp on or do it. And, uh, yeah, the people she stomps on tend to be people less powerful than she is. I'll leave it at that. All right. Uh, moving on. The um, Garfield 
County Jail. And yes. Kyle Laura? Yes, Kyle Laura was an inmate in the Garfield County Jail who committed suicide last March. Uh, that is March 2022. And his family has launched a lawsuit uh, alleging wrongful death. And the details of this are kind of blood-curdling. Um, Garfield County is in southeast Washington. It is the least populous county in Washington state. There's only about 2,000 people there. Um, Laura was known to be suicidal. And, um, you know, uh, federal guidelines suggest that, uh, you know, deputies had, were uh, supposed to check on him every 15 minutes uh, because Garfield County is so tiny. Uh, they left that job to the dispatcher to, in her copious time off, you know, check on Lara. Um, and allegedly, according to the uh, lawsuit, his body wasn't found for 18 hours, uh, which is somewhat different than the 15-minute standard. Uh, and two meals were served to his corpse before before somebody figured out that he was the dude was actually dead. Uh, so the family is alleged all wrongful death lawsuit lawsuit. Uh, we'll see where they go. So the Seattle lawyer who is handling this calls it the worst case he's ever seen. So uh, that should tell you something. And unfortunately, you know, uh, uh, jail um, uh, jail conditions are something that don't get a lot of attention in the media. Uh, this didn't get a lot of attention. Uh, there's national stories that haven't gotten a lot of attention, which we'll get to a little bit later. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's you know, he was, uh, Laura is being held in solitary confinement, which Amnesty International is defined as torture. Um, and which seems like a, you know, bad strategy for somebody who's already suicidal, uh, to put them in a situation that, that is that emotionally stressful. Um, uh, jail management in this country is a scandal that needs a lot more attention than it's getting. Yeah, and solitary confinement is used everywhere, it appears. Yeah, it, it really is. It's, it certainly seems to be a, a solution of first resort rather than last resort. Yeah, reading about it in the one of the local papers, they talked about the one dispatcher who uses a single computer screen to take dispatch calls and monitor the, the 20 jail cameras. And also, like, handle all the other um, stuff that's coming in. Dispatchers frequently take 911 calls. Dispatch officers, emergency medical and fire personnel, enter warrants and protection orders, monitor and serve meals, and administer medication to those in jail. So they had one person doing all that. Um, and that person wasn't getting paid nearly enough. I guarantee it. Uh, but, yeah, that should, that should be about four jobs. All right. Moving on then to national. And last time we talked to with you two weeks ago when we did the show, um, you talked about developments with Mifa Pristone. Mifa Pristone, yeah. That is the uh, medication uh, that is used uh, mostly in the United States for medical abortions. And we are still awaiting a ruling out of Texas from a Trump appointed judge who wants to ban it nationally. It's a federal judge. Um, so, uh, we're going to see what happens with that. Meanwhile, over the past uh, couple of weeks, Walgreens has already stopped stocking the drug, uh, which is the, I believe the nation's second largest, uh, pharmacy chain after CVS. So, um, 
so that is is already um, uh, ensuring that a lot of people don't have access to the drug. Um, and, you know, we're going to hopefully find out in the next week or so uh, what happens with the Texas ruling. Uh, chances are very good that will be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there was a lawsuit launched by uh, Attorney General uh, uh, Ferguson in Washington state, along with 11 other states that uh, uh, tries to protect access to mifeprednisone. Uh, excuse me, uh, mifepristisone. And, um, you know, so if in that uh, that ruling in the Ninth Circuit is favorable, that would lead to two conflicting circuit rulings uh, because the Texas ruling will go to the Fifth Circuit, which is extremely conservative and uh, Trump-friendly. Um, those conflicting rulings would go to the Supreme Court, and we have a pretty good idea where the Supreme Court stands in abortion. Um, so, uh, this is coming down the pike, and it's uh, already happening because chains like uh, Walgreens are already taking it off the shelves, which is really, really, really unfortunate. We're seeing a movement uh, in California uh, to force uh, Walgreens to just keep stocking the drug, and we will see where that goes also. Um, and, of course, a lot of people have been calling to, to boycott Walgreens, which is not going to be particularly effective, but... You know, go for it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not much of a fan of, of boycotts because they are, they usually don't uh, lead anywhere other than people, uh, you know, virtuous ignoring. Well, isn't California cutting off or ending a $54 million contract with Walgreens because of this? Yes. And, and the legislature is trying to force Walgreens to stock the drug as, as well. So, you know, we'll see where that goes. And whether whether a big corporation like Walgreens is susceptible to that kind of pressure or not, hopefully they are, because they've gotten a ton of blowback to this decision, not just from California, but from other states and other consumers as well. Right. Doesn't what California is doing then become an example that other states can enact? Absolutely. Okay, moving on. The Silicon Valley Bank uh, had some uh, Big, big news yesterday. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about this. The Silicon Valley Bank is uh, a, a bank in, of course, Silicon Valley uh, that primarily did institutional lending to uh, startup ventures in the tech sector, uh, which is inherently risky. Um, and the bank failed yesterday. It was the second largest bank failure in U.S. history um, and the first major bank failure since 2008. Um, what we see with Silicon Valley Bank is, uh, it's kind of difficult to explain. I wish Maria were here because she's so gifted at explaining this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, they, they failed for different reasons than banks were failing in 2008, 2009. Um, in this case, uh, the Fed has been increasing, uh, interest rates. Over the past six months, uh, relatively rapidly by historical standards. And that, uh, that makes it difficult for banks to keep up in terms of their carrying loans, uh, done at lower interest rates. They get less money back from that. Uh, the cost of lending is higher. And so, uh, so they lose money. Um, and, uh, Silicon Valley Bank apparently was overextended, but we're also hearing 
that there are other regional banks in other parts of the country, uh, particularly in, you know, uh, major metropolitan areas with a lot of startups, a lot of tech, et cetera, um, that are similarly overextended and that may also be at risk. So this was a warning shot. And, you know, for all of the denials from the federal government of, no, we're not heading into a recession. Yeah, everything's great. Uh, we're, and the, the Fed has, uh, capped insurance, uh, inflation, I'm sorry. Uh, one of those IN words. Uh, you know, it, anybody who does grocery shopping doesn't think that insurance has been, I keep saying insurance. Inflation has been stopped. Uh, it hasn't. Uh, and, you know, housing costs are better than they, they were a few months ago. Uh, but food prices still go up. Um, it's, it's a real, real problem. Um, and, you know, um, it's, uh, it's, 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 I think we are definitely a risk of recession, uh, over the course of the next year, which has political implications and it has real world implications. And Silicon Valley Bank is kind of the proverbial canary in a coal mine, uh, because they were doing high risk loans to, to big dead, big tech startups. And, uh, you know, a lot of those don't work out. Um, and so some of those loans have to be eaten. It's the nature of the business and, um, it caught up to them. Yeah. I think, um, food prices, uh, definitely impacts a completely different sector than housing prices. <laughs> Yes. You really really got to be doing pretty well to be able to like be buying a house these days. Yeah. Although, uh, you know, neither of those costs are reflected in the official inflation rate. They've been taken out of the official inflation rate because, uh, you know, real estate and food prices are and gas prices are considered too volatile. So they're not considered part of inflation, which is kind of insane because those are the kinds of things, uh, you know, uh, rental costs, uh, impact ordinary people in a way that, um, that say, uh, the stock market does not. So moving on, it's been two weeks since you got to share your updates on, on our former president. What has happened <laughs> since then? Well, um, a lot's been going on, uh, although not with Trump's presidential campaign. Um, we're seeing his chief rival, Ron DeSantis, roll out a new book. And that's been kind of nauseating, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, uh, Trump is inching closer and closer to indictment, it appears, in at least two places. Uh, at least, I'm saying. One would be the Fulton County uh, District Attorney, who has said that a decision is imminent on whether to uh, follow the grand jury's recommendations for criminal prosecutions. The grand jury and the grand jury forewoman has said that they did make uh, criminal recommendations. They have not said of who. They very carefully avoided that. But uh, Trump is on the table for asking for 11,000-some uh, votes to be found in his infamous phone call to the Secretary of State of Georgia after the election. Um, uh, that is uh, pending. We also are seeing a lot of movement in the New York uh, state in, excuse me, uh, New York's, uh, uh, Manhattan District Attorney investigation of, uh, 
the Stormy Daniels uh, payoff in, in the 2016 election. That investigation has been moving forward. Uh, former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen has been called to testify to the grand jury there. Uh, he previously testified to Congress about some of uh, what he viewed as Trump's criminal activity. Um, so that is that seems fairly significant. And uh, according to uh, New York City uh, media, uh, a possible criminal indictment of the former president is is imminent there as well. Uh, of course, the, uh, the Department of Justice, the Federal Department of Justice, is handling a couple of even larger investigations, one of the January 6th investigation, another of the uh, 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 secret documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago, uh, and uh, those may result in indictments as well. So uh, there are at least four major criminal investigations uh, closing in on the former president, and, you know, we'll see where it goes, um, because uh, uh, obviously that's uh, that's something that will uh, if if indictments are handed down, get a uh, furious reaction from the right, uh, uh, you know, the law and order folks. And, um, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out and whether those go to trial and if they go to trial, whether they result in, will result in convictions. All right. DOJ releasing a report on the Louisville PD. Yeah, uh, the Louisville uh, – in, in, let me back up. In the wake of the Breonna Taylor killing in March of 2020, the Federal Department of Justice started an investigation as to whether the Louisville uh, Police uh, Department – has been systematically engaging in racially biased policing. And that report came out this week, and surprise, surprise, it is, it has been. Uh, the Department of Justice report was scathing. Uh, it's the kind of report that often results in uh, the kind of consent decree that the Seattle Police Department has been under for the last decade plus. Um, and uh, richly deserved, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, local activism around the uh, problems with the Louisville Police Department. And, you know, there, there's been, if, if you talk to the uh, the activists on the ground in Louisville, they're, they're under no disillusionment about the nature of the police there, that they've been extremely uh, racist and, uh, uh, you know, they have a long trail of bodies of, uh, of uh, people of color, not just Breonna Taylor that were innocently killed. All right. Uh, I want to jump and get in some international, starting sure. with the uh, protests, uh, protests happening in Israel. Yeah. Uh, Israel has been uh, the, the new right-wing government there, led by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, but including a lot of uh, seriously fascist ministers that he has brought into the government, uh, very disturbing people who are, to talk openly about, you know, the eradication of Palestinians. Um, and uh, that government has uh, forced through its parliament, which is called the Neset, a, uh, a piece of legislation that would preempt the, uh, the country's Supreme Court, which often has been a, a, a guardrail against uh, some of the depredations, some of the human rights violations of the of the military and of the government, uh, 
saying that, uh, well, uh, legislation can override any, uh, basically any court rulings that we don't like, uh, that we can ignore those. And there have been huge demonstrations against this in Israel by, uh, by not just people on the left and Palestinians, uh, human rights activists, uh, you know, all kinds of people who are alarmed at where the right wing government is going and, uh, what the, what this would mean for the potential future of Israel. So, uh, keep an eye on that, uh, because that's, it's, it's been, uh, it's really paralyzed the, the country over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, they're proposing clauses that will allow Parliament to override the Supreme Court by a simple majority, 61 votes out of 120 MPs. It's one of the items. And also that give coalition lawmakers de facto authority to appoint judges. Yeah, and remember that 61 out of 120, um, that means uh, the ruling party. Because, right. uh because you know now he was uh, elected prime minister by a majority of the parliament so uh so yeah whatever the ruling government wants to do it can do under this under this law and that's what's alarming people yeah and uh france is uh, engulfed in months of protests yeah uh and those have been continuing uh, and uh again that that really underscores that, uh, you know, how different Europe is and some European countries are from the United States. These protests have been over the proposed raising of the retirement age from 62 to 64. Now, retirement in the United States is basically you can work until you die and then you can rest. Um, uh, that, that's, that's the law. Uh, yeah, now, um, in theory, um, you know, you can retire when you're 67 with Social Security now. But, um, you know, uh, most pensions have been destroyed by, uh, you know, uh, corporate cutbacks. Um, most pension plans are gone and uh, or raided by, uh, you know, by uh, corrupt corporations. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, it uh, really underscores that the safety net in Europe is very, very different than it is in the United States and that we don't have to live in this way. Um, that would, of course, require a very different kind of federal government. Um, but, you know, I, I, I live in hope. Mm. I think it would require a different kind of um, populace, too, that is a little more active in pushing yes. back. that's very true. All right, and finally, uh, real quickly, uh, I saw that Iran and Saudi Arabia are yes, now this, working together. This is a geopolitically huge agreement. Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed this week to restore diplomatic relations. Um, they are frequently painted as regional rivals, and in fact, they've been uh, waging proxy wars in at least a couple places, Syria being one, Yemen being another. Um, and the United States has been, you know, trying trying to push the Saudi Arabian side and arm the Saudi Arabian side in both of those conflicts. Um, uh, but the the diplomatic uh, sort of peace treaty uh, between the two was brokered by China, which is very very interesting. 
and the media coverage in the United States of this has been terrible. It's been, oh, woe is me. This is an awful development for U.S. influence in the Middle East. Well, yes, but for Middle Easterners themselves, uh, it's a very welcome development because it means more peace. It means the United States can't push war as easily, um, hopefully. And, um, you know, uh, of course, China has its own motivations for trying to be in the region, particularly because it's much more energy dependent on the Middle East than the United States is. Um, but um, so they're they're not a non-malign actor either, uh, but they don't push wars the way the United States does. Um, and, you know, uh, all for all of the coverage of, you know, Iran, bad Saudi Arabia, good in this in this pairing. Uh, Saudi Arabia is at least as bad a human rights violator, uh, with the Khashoggi killing, with bombings in Yemen of civilians, you know, all those different depredations and, and the, the human rights violations within Saudi Arabia itself, um, which the United States has had for a long, long time no particular interest in confronting Saudi Arabia over. Um, so this was, a, this will be a very interesting development. We'll see where it goes. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week, but there's always next week. There is. We'll see you next week.